All right, we're on the HRC podcast. Uh, soon we'll be launching another podcast, but this is the HRC Ministries one. And we're in a kind of a position where we're interviewing our staff and kind of getting their stories because you're kind of the face of HRC. You're out talking to people, our staff is, and people want to know your story and how you ended up here and why you do what you do. So to start off, first question I always ask people was if I met you in high school, who would I be meeting? Oh, boy. Um, well, it would be better than junior high. I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> high school, um, I was kind of on a trajectory. I grew up um, in Boston, and high school at that point was four years, not three. So it was nine through 12. And That's what it is now. Okay. Well, sometimes it's 10 through 12, but, um, there it was, no, sorry. It was the reverse. So junior high was seventh, eighth and ninth. And so high school is 10, 11, 12. So, um, my parents were, got a divorce when I was 11 or my mom left. And I just remember overhearing a conversation of somebody in high school of, you can get out of high school in two years instead of three. And I'm, my ears perked up and I said, really, what's this program? So I found out about it and went home and I was living with um, my dad. I'm the youngest of three and my siblings had moved to San Diego at that point. And um, so I went home and told him, I have this plan and I can do my senior year at night and my junior year in the day, I'll take the trolley into Boston and Um, he's like, you know, I think you can do whatever you need to do. And so anyways, I got out of high school in 16. So you would have met a very responsible, like I was working right after school. I was that Switzerland role where I had friends as jocks, friends as, you know, the drug people. And, uh, my whole trajectory was get the heck out of Dodge. I'm moving to San Diego. Really? So you wanted to move out of Boston mm-hmm. and go to San Diego at 16? You knew that's what you wanted? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like I was running towards something. I was really running from. Because at that point, like I said, my it was just me and my dad at home. And I thought, it's time to do something different. Yeah, but the other side of the country, like that was... What were you running from? I mean, that sounds like something massive to want to go to the other side of the country. Well, my sister and brother in San Diego. So my sister was eight years older and my brother was four years older. And I kind of looked at them thinking they're my stability because it wasn't my parents. And um, so that's what drew me. Oh, okay. So you had had family in San Diego. I had family. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. It wasn't a random, like from one end to the other. Yeah. I was like, do you like surfing or like, (laughs) what was was the thing here? I would (laughs) have. So did you always, did you grow up a Christian? Um, How did you find Christ? Um, I would categorize our family as priesters. So um, I think back in the day, we went to a congregational church and eventually the message kind of was my dad would drop my brother and I off at church and my sister didn't go stop going. And so just that message right there, it's like, it's good for us, but not for him. And so, you know, that always left a question mark for me. And, um, when I was 11, as I see the Lord and kind of where he put milestones, my best friend, Muffy, such a back East name, um, was in my life. And her mom was a strong Christian and believer. And they took me to a Billy Graham movie. I would have been in sixth grade called for Pete's sake. And that's when I accepted the Lord. But what motivated me to do that is I remember uh, walking through the door of my kitchen and my mom is sitting there flipping pancakes for my brother and all his friends that are sitting around smoking weed in the kitchen. And it was definitely a Holy Spirit thing as I walked through and just thought there has got to be more to life than this. There has got to be. So that's sixth grade. It's sixth grade. So at that thinking and then Muffy's family paralleling me, mm-hmm. it was you know, the Holy Spirit had it all set up for, okay, you need me. And that's when I just thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to walk the road that, that is presented to me. But that was the beginning. I will say I called him my savior, but he really wasn't my Lord then at that point. Okay. So it's interesting to me how important it is um, to just be involved in your kids' friends' lives. So much. Because I mean, look at that. You, I mean, if you told me that you had a friend, 
named Muffy uh, <laughs> that you walked through life with you, I would think she was like your, uh, I don't know, made up friend or something. My imaginary heard, friend. Yeah, I've never heard of that name before. That's interesting. But no, I think I might have heard, wasn't there somebody named Muffy on Arthur? Yes, there's Muffy, there's Biff, there's all those back east names. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, all right, I see you. Yeah, so that's interesting, but it, it's 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 curious to me, uh, makes me curious to know like how much of an impact did her parents huge just play in your life when you're going home and it's a little chaotic and everyone's stoned and then you go meet with her family and did you just see like a complete different alternative and it looked completely different. Like I eventually, like I spent all my waking hours over at her house. I would go up to Maine for summers with her family. I mean, it was just like, I had this whole normal life compared to mine. And Mm. I just thought that's what I want. This is not what I want. And uh, you know, it's kind of weird to say this, but as a kid, I used to feel sorry for my dad thinking here you are trying to raise your last child, your third, your daughter. And he was a Mr. MIT think tank kind of guy and always off on business trips. So I had this huge house that we grew up in, a 17-room boys' dormitory um, to myself often. Like in eighth grade, I was left alone for weeks at a time. And my Mm. two vices through junior high and high school and a little bit on from that was um, food and boys. So put that together and um, a big 17-room house. And there was a lot of fun there for a while. Jeez. Not good fun, but fun. (laughs) (laughs) So when do you make him, where do you go from Christ as uh, my savior, which is just the basic understanding that I'm a sinner. I need salvation. I need somebody to forgive me because I'm living in a 17 story house with no accountability and doing crazy stuff. Right. So Lord, I, I want you to be in charge of every aspect of my life and I'm, I'm going to follow you completely and you're, whatever you want is where I'm going. Like where, how do you make that transition? Cause I think that happens to a lot of us is at first we're understanding like, man, I need some help here. And then it shifts to, I, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I, I'll do whatever you want. It's a great question. There's a lot of years in between that because I feel like I walked that double line of Monday through Saturday I was this person, and then Sunday I would go with Muffy's family. I sang in the choir. I got baptized in eighth grade, um, and on and on through high school I lived that. And then moving out to San Diego, my siblings weren't believers, so um, I was kind of a lone ranger there and didn't have an anchor, um, so didn't really pursue the Lord in that way um, very much at that time. And then um, I went to... I went from San Diego to Reno because I met a surfer in San Diego who had happened to graduate from University of Nevada, Reno. So that's, I went up that way. And if you notice, there's no consulting the Lord in these decisions. I was just like, whoom, there I am in Reno. So, um, you know, again, God has a sense of humor. I was there for uh, five years and ended up meeting my first husband, who was the son of the pastor of Reno Christian Fellowship. So started oh. going back there. And so my father and my so first father. So you think I'm meeting a pastor boy, like mm-hmm. my life's going to be great. I'm making a smart decision. Huh? I'm making a smart decision. Um, my I loved <laughs> my in-laws. So the first time around, uh, I married the family I wanted and got a husband with it. Second time around, I married the husband, got the family with it. So I had it a little backwards in the beginning. (laughs) Part of it was, you know, I was not secure in my walk with the Lord. And so when I got married the first time at 24, um, I, I wasn't strong enough to stand on my own. I had graduated from college. I was working at the employment security department and, um, both husband's names are David. So if you just kind of follow the bouncing ball, keep that name in mind. (laughs) Um, the, when I got married the first time, David, number one, we were moving to San Antonio because we had gotten, we were doing aircraft and automobile uh, detailing. Mm. So uh, we put a Teflon finish over fuselages and uh, to prevent de-icing. And so we got a contract with the largest aircraft refurbishing company at that time in the world in San Antonio. 
moved down there and worked together and buffed planes and the humidity. And boy, that was just a, an adventure. But at that same time, my oldest sister-in-law was um, a teacher and high up in a Bible college there called The Hill um, mm. in Comfort, Texas. So we spent a lot of time up there. And as I watched my marriage spiral out of control a little bit there, um, you know, I got closer to the Lord and he has a way of doing that in those valleys. Um, and then we moved to San Jose cause we had a product we used and we, after three years in Texas, it's very hot and wonderful people, but we didn't want to stay there. So we moved to San Jose and at that point there was a fork in the road. I just decided I don't want to work with you anymore. He went from mom and dad to me at 25 and at 24, I had been on my own since I was 16 so we had different work ethics and, um, mm. I walked into a recruiting office and asked if they could place me somewhere. And they said, no, we don't have anything for your background, but, um, cause I had gotten my degree in social work and nutrition. Um, but we, we would love to, um, have you watch a video. Have you thought about being a recruiter? And I thought, no. And so anyways, I went in and watched this video and my dad used to always accuse me of needing to surgically remove the phone from my ear because I was always talking on the phone to friends. <laughs> and so when I watched this video, I thought, oh my goodness, you can make that kind of money and talk on the phone. This is made for me. I was born <laughs> for this. <laughs> so um, within the first... Is this like pre-cell phone? <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, that was like still the dial phone on the wall. Um so within the first six months, I had made the pace setter trip or whatever. And, and meanwhile, my marriage was kind of going south. And um, uh, so I went down to Acapulco that was this all expenses paid trip. And my husband wouldn't come with me because he just thought I was turning into a different person because I was no longer working with him. And I think it was kind of a um, uncomfortable position for him to be in and so I took a friend of mine and we went down, uh, to this trip and our manager, my manager introduced me to this other David who was working a similar desk, um, than I was at that time. And, um, they wanted us to do split business, but instead, um, there was like this instant attraction. And what I didn't know at the time is his marriage was out the door, going out the door. And so was mine. So we did split business for a year and dated off and on. And, um, we ended up getting married. So I, um, moved down to Southern California from Northern California at that time. And, you know, um, it's funny when you start to look at marrying somebody at this point, I'm getting a little wiser. The Lord's putting more questions in my mind of, well, does he walk with me? Is he a believer? And so I had to look at my own life in light of that as well. And, um, so we were growing a little bit in the Lord as a couple. And then we moved to, we had an agreement. If we have kids, which we really wanted kids, we would move out of Southern California. Um, so we took two years and threw darts at a map and, um, ended up in Spokane. It was just one of, the, it was such a God ordained thing. Cause the minute we drove through here, um, it was like, this is home. And so it was kind of a gut feeling. And one of my prayers was, Lord, will you introduce us to Christian couples, like people that are like-minded and, oh my gosh, he answered that in spades. And so, um, then we had our son here. So, um, our kids are 21 months apart and, um, you know, at that point, everything, we were so in love and, um, there was just so many, um, great things about what David was doing. He was involved in rotary and, uh, we got plugged into a church. And at that point it was life center. Cause I had called, um, down in Southern California <laughs> and I said, uh, to the church we had gone to, is there any normal church that you're aware of in Spokane, Washington, anywhere. Cause, um, and they laughed and they said, yeah, actually there is a church called life center. So that's how we got to life center. Oh, right. Um, <clears throat> so anyways, we raised our, you know, kids in that point, but I started noticing, um, and at that stage I had the privilege to stay home with the kids and, um, David was recruiting, but I started to notice things slipping, which was not him, just 
kind of this anger, this whatever underlying. And I kept thinking, what is wrong? You have a wife who adores you. You are super successful. You have amazing kids. You have a great family. Um, I don't get it. So it was like the Holy Spirit was sort of laying the groundwork of um, what was about to come, which I had no idea. Hmm. And um, so there was several, uh, there was a couple suicide contemplations. Um, I couldn't figure it out. And what I did find initially was um, a severe addiction to porn. I found that on our computer. Um, And he was kind of falling into a funk and a depression. And, you know, it's just a, it was a hard thing to balance. And we would go to counseling and we went to counseling for five years and I never still knew what was the real issue going on. Um, And a sidebar of this, what started back in college for me was um, I said like, guys and food were kind of my vices. Mm -hmm. Well, I became bulimic and I had been um, bulimic for 23 years. So in 2001, um, I ended up uh, being handed a leader's guide at Celebrate Recovery. Um, Our church was bringing that to, um, it was uh, Manitou Press at the time. Um, And so they asked me if I wanted to be a leader. And I just remember thinking, they have no idea. Like I just threw up the night before. How could I be a leader? And what I didn't know, I look back and that was the Lord handing me the guide saying, no, I'm going to walk you through this. Mm. And so during those five years, when I said we were going to counseling, the, that beginning of that fifth year, which was 2001, um, that was the beginning of sobriety for me from bulimia. Mm. So, um, it had been 23 years and I just remember thinking, I don't know how I'll ever get out of this. And, um, so I was a leader in celebrate recovery, went through the program, led other gals through it. And that was God cleaning up my end of the, the, um, ledger, so to speak. And then we were moving into David. And so, Mm. you know, when I look, we were paralleling two addicts that came together, different things, but, um, you know, similar darkness. Yeah. So before we get into, cause I'm, I definitely want to get into that because you, um, sounds like you're, you're married, you married the pastor's son. And then, um, that doesn't work out. Cause we kind of just briefly skipped through that. I, I want to make sure like people don't hear that, uh, this is God's plan to get married and then just meet some other better person. Could you little dive in a little bit more on that to how that happened? Cause it sounded almost like maybe that is what happened. Um, but it just sounded like you just kind of bailed on your husband and went over and started working at a recruiting firm and found some better, hotter guy and took off with him. No, there was a lot behind that. It's a good, (laughs) good question. Let me back up on that. So, um, when we were in San Antonio, uh, I remember my mother-in-law had come down from Reno and we were out to lunch and she and I were in the restroom and I just blurted out. I said, I think I'm pregnant. And Mm. she kind of looked at me and and I was shocked at her because she's the she's a pastor's wife. And I don't know what to expect other than I'm married and I wasn't planning on getting pregnant. But why is it not OK? So with mm. her reaction, she was very protective. And she said, well, you you guys can't have children right now. David's not ready. He's trying to build a business. And I just had all these confusing thoughts going through my head of I thought this was OK. And yet it took two of us and it wasn't intentional. I felt very defensive, but also super confused. And again, my family weren't believers, so I can't go to them. And Mm -hmm. they had kind of gave me the indications they weren't really fond of my first husband anyway. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't about to lean in on them. And then my Christian friends, I didn't want to share what I was thinking because abortion is not okay. So, um, I just felt very conflicted and went in and we did go to Planned Parenthood and I got an abortion and I just remember thinking this is so wrong. And yet I, again, I was not strong enough in my faith to stand up and say, no, this is not, I know you don't approve of this or what have you, but no, that's the right thing to do. And, um, 
Yeah. So this is a past. So just to make this clear, this is a pastor's kid mm-hmm. that you get pregnant with. You're married. We're married. And you have a baby, and you're about to have a baby. So yep. instead of celebrating right. the fact that God's giving you life, yep. you're getting. Uh, it sounds like almost advice from the pastor's wife that this is not the right timing. And that must've been super confusing. Super confusing combined with, there was an element of shame in there because, um, it was, we're not going to tell my father-in-law. So I, I mean, that sends the message all the way around. It's secretive, it's negative, it's dark, get rid Mm. of this. And so I just felt so pressured. And I look back thinking if I only had, you know, if I was walking with the Lord, I would have stood up for that. Mm. So, um, so that was the beginning of really a division in our relationship because, um, so then going back to moving into San Jose, there was this dark cloud there and there wasn't like, let's go to counseling over there. None of that. It was kind of like, well, we're moving on and we're going back to the detail business thing. And it just felt so conflicting and Mm. I felt guilty. I knew it was wrong. Um, I mean, I wasn't really ready at that point to be a parent anyways, but that was not the point. The point was, um, I just gave up a child. Mm. So I think, um, as I look back, I was resentful. It was hurtful, confusing. And, um, yeah, I was kind of left holding that baggage. So, um, so then going into recruiting, it's kind of like I dove into that because I found success in that and acceptance. And I didn't feel that because of that division over the abortion with my husband okay. and in-laws. So mm. that's where that went. So I never had wanted a divorce ever, mm. but it, that just, you know, the enemy kind of took that and used it as great division. Got it. Cause you at that time you were just not even, you were just young in your faith and that, that sounds, um, I mean, it, it, it makes sense to me why later in life you would go and work at life services and, and mm-hmm. have a passion to help women that had uh, made that decision um, work through that. And just the fact that you can openly talk about it and yeah. you've got healing from it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And I went through deep healing prayer uh, with somebody here in Spokane for quite a while over that and mm-hmm. had to, um, I came to the awareness it was a son and... Um, named the son and it was super healing to go through mm. all that <clears throat> and yeah. process that. Cause it was really the first time I had done it. And yeah. even though, you know, post that marriage, it needed to be done. Mm. And I often wonder, um, you know, in that situation, where did he go with that? Does that mm. ever crop back up? You know, I had a, I had a child. Yeah. So Oh, thank forgiveness. God, thank God for forgiveness and grace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of young people that we work with um, that have made that decision. And, you know, culture kind of tells them to make that decision. And, and it's uh, then there's like an emptiness or there's depression or they just know like, ah, oh, this just wasn't right. This didn't feel right. And uh, thank God that there's healing from that and there's forgiveness. And um, we can kind of move forward and walk through that and still know that it's, you know, that it's not God's plan. And, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's interesting before you find Christ, like the, the lies that culture tells you and can like land you in depression. Oh, and cause that would land like every woman I've ever met with, you know, abortion, such a big thing. It's my choice, but every woman I've ever met with that's had one massively regrets it. Yep. Well, I think now, I mean, I, I love kids and I'm so, um, blessed that I have two, but I think, no, I really could have had three. Mm. So, you know, you live with that. And the only thing I feel, um, I guess, uh, validated with is I will get to see him one day in heaven. Mm. But, you know, sometimes when I stop and sit with that and I cut short a life that you never know who that person would have been. So, and who he would have been for the Lord or what have you. But, um, yeah, again, grace and thankful that I, I know I am forgiven, but also that I can pass on that empathy with anyone else walking through that. I get the fear, the struggle that I can't do it. I don't have the support, all of that. But after, um, working at life services and having that benefit to 
come alongside those gals and see that it is possible, it, it was huge. Mm. And it's like, God keeps taking all of my sin and faux pas and putting me in work environments to like turn beauty to ashes it's, or the other way around. Yeah. Beauty from ashes. That's incredible. So now, okay. So that makes more sense to me. So now when you end up meeting David number two, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, here's a, here's a fresh start. I don't have shame with them. He sounds like a very charming, charismatic, hardworking guy. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, I'm, I'm done. I want a fresh start. Mm-hmm. And then through that process, um, is that kind of where you end up really deciding to serve God? Um, again, it goes back to, I think it wasn't until I was backed against the wall. The Lord knows my donkey mm-hmm. hard head. <laughs> I wasn't until I was backed up against the wall with, um, bulimia and just really yeah. seeing I cannot overcome this on my own. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's like, Lord, if you really are who you say you are, um, I'm, totally surrendered. And it was one hour at a time, one Got minute it. at a time. And pretty soon I looked back and I thought, Oh my gosh, I can look back and I have a whole new history. And mm-hmm. it was just God's mercy and forgiveness and, you know, new mercies every day. So that was huge for me. That's interesting. So, okay. So you're, you go through that, you go to celebrate recovery, you really start deciding to surrender this part, surrender to the Lord. You start seeing healing Mm-hmm. And you're thinking your husband has a porn addiction. No, I'm not thinking. I found it. Yeah. So, you know, so he, he has a porn addiction. So now you're going to dive into seeing him get help. But the more you dive into it, uh, the it darker just seems it got. like life just kind of flipped on its head for you. Do you mind talking a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, the porn, you know, again, I think every woman, people think, the enemy is the king of it's no big deal. And I feel, I feel like our culture has really bought that as far as porn, but it is so to a woman, it is the same as you might as well be having the affair because you are in your mind. And, um, so I just had great anger about that and angst and frustration Um, but then I kept seeing again, David downslide. And so what I found out later, he had a, um, two attempts at suicide, um, contemplations. And he and I came together realizing, okay, this is more, he needs inpatient treatment. So, um, we went and found, um, the place in Seattle called the center. It's over in Edmonds. And, um, he went over there for four weeks and I visited a few times and, you know, what I didn't know is what was being prepared for my next visit. So I, I went over there and, um, he and I had taken a little walk along the beach before the first counseling session and it was the Holy spirit. And I said, is there anything more I should know? Like there's something. And he said, well, there actually is. And he sat me down on a bench and I said, take off your sunglasses. I want to see what your eyes are going to tell me. And he said, well, sometimes when I would go to massage parlors, they would turn into sex acts. And it was like this slow rolling it's like the word prostitution just came across my forehead and I just looked and like, who are you? And I was furious. And so anyways, they had a team of counselors already prepared for this, but they didn't know he was going to share it before that. So they were kind of there to catch me when I would fall because mm. they knew. So, um, it was, because he had opened up to the counselors. It took the, him a week and a half, okay. but it was the first time in 25 years he shared his double life. 25 years of a double life. Yep. And it was like, Mm -hmm. he had a backpack of rocks on and he took it off his back and he put it on me, um, not intentionally, but that was the result. And so now I'm faced with my greatest nightmare because it's the fork in the road of, are you going to divorce this guy? I don't want to be a single mom. I never wanted a divorce. I still loved him. Mm. Um, so, uh, we had found this, but he had found this material when he was there through Doug Weiss from heart to heart counseling in, um, Denver, um, Colorado Springs. And, uh, so, we, he went through the program. I stayed for a week of grief and loss counseling after he left and then uh, Doug Weiss had invited us to be get or David to be a guest on his show first in New York um, through Fox, and then later a Christian show through the James and Betty Robinson show. Dave or uh, live today, 
life today um, down in Houston. So I think you have a clip of that. We had found Doug's material. And that is where the full disclosure of David's truth of the double life he's lived came about for me. And the shocking truth was I felt like running mm -hmm. and felt like um, I was on a Jerry Springer show and if they could just turn the channel, it wouldn't be my life. Mm -hmm. I really didn't believe, I was in shock when I found out. Um, yeah, about his addiction. About his addiction and the seriousness of it and the level of deception and what I believe to be who he was all these years was somebody different. And it's very shocking. And the first, um, I th think the first line of defense for a woman is you feel like, what's wrong with me? Am I not smart mm -hmm. enough? Are you not attractive mm -hmm. enough? Am I not successful enough? And so you start to go down that path, which is so the enemy's path because it cuts right to the heart of a woman. And, um, after I got through that, there was some of Doug's material I read with that and another book um, that I read that helped me understand a little bit, even though there was so much anger, I could be Cameron Diaz and it wouldn't mm -hmm. be enough. It <laughs> wouldn't matter. Mm. And it was elusive and it was a drug and it was the same as alcohol and sex, although the consequences are totally different, alcohol and drugs. Um, it it uh, is just permeated every area of our life. and. I really heard God call me when I found out, talk to me about, there's a fork in the road here and I had a crisis of faith. And one of the counselors over in Seattle asked me, um, Nancy, is there a difference in sin? And I had to really think about that. And I thought, no, there's a difference of consequence, but not sin. So I had to look at my own life. And then I started looking at it through the light of the cross and thinking, mm. well, if God loves me enough to forgive me, he's in turn asking me to pass that on. And I was only able to respond to that because of David's response, mm -hmm. because he was very repentant and very broken and tearful and depressed and a mess. And our, our whole life, you know, I came to that point where, all right, here we go. I have a choice to make. Do I want to be a blessing or a curse? And so God gave me a verse in those very early days of uh, Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 that said, um, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Forget the past. Mm. Um, I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And I just held on to that. And I said, okay, Lord, if you really are my Lord and Savior, I've, I've called you my Savior forever. But now if you're my Lord, okay, now I'm going to walk this out. And it started out hour by hour with much anger, much um I also learned that forgiveness is a daily process. Mm -hmm. It still is. I mean, yeah. it just, you know, I wake up every day saying, Lord, help me love him like you do. Help me see him like you do. And because I'm no different. That brings back some memories. <laughs> Gee, many Christmas. <clears throat> so that's, um, there's a lot of thoughts running through my head as I like watch that because working with women coming out of human trafficking, um, you know, some of my thoughts go to he's participating in that. Totally. The women uh, may or may not have been choosing to be in the positions that uh, where he would meet them. Mm -hmm. And the other part is if we're going to see something shift and something change and men realizing what they're doing is wrong and repenting, where's the balance between grace and justice? Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. if, if you're, for instance, like somebody like me that grew up in a church, uh, church world and got really addicted to pornography at a young age, like the thought of coming out with that and sharing that with your family to get help is terrifying. Terrifying. Because you're, you just, you feel like, man, if I open up about this, I'm just going to be hit with shame and all this stuff. And that's not what happened to me. Um, but you're just you're consumed with fear about that. And with something that extreme, mm -hmm. like when you do decide, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. How do you, you know, how do you do that? And, but well, then at the same time, it's like, dude, you're out buying, you're buying women. Like you're participating in human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Like there's gotta be justice. Like that's the, there's a balance there. That's, how did you process that? It was really hard because I think um, as I listened to his story, um, 
when we were in New York doing the first one with um, Fox, the interview, I got to see it sort of from a third party and, and um, more objective. And I listened to him growing up um, and he had a fabulous family, but he had a classmate in seventh grade that um, molested him, which kind of started him down that path. And the very thing that you just said is that shame. Um, if, if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. And that kept that going for 25 years for him. Mm. Just, um, you know, it started out back in the day. You wouldn't know this, but like Playboy um, before there were even screens and all that kind of stuff. And it was just progressive. It was like a drug starts out with weed sometimes and ends up in meth. But, you know, there's yeah. a lot of steps along the way. Well, I'm not that young. I mean, it doesn't every guy I think knows what Playboy is. Well, yeah, but that was a, the only means back then. <laughs> um, right. But then progressed and. So when he finally got to the point of coming out with that, it just, mm. it was so relieving to him and so like flattening for me. I mean, there weren't even any words. And I was walking that fine line of here, my kids are going to a classical Christian school and uh, I'm f- finding out about this thinking in it. And at the time too, also paralleling that I was, um, leading in Bible study fellowship. We were involved in small groups. I mean, there was just like all these things on the outside and you're thinking, how could mm. this be? And so it was a, a constant adjusting in my mind of, no, this is my reality. But I look at pictures of, you know, when our kids were little and all the things we were doing. And I had, I looked, I started seeing a different lens, like, well, what was really going on when this is what the picture represents, but that's really not what was happening. So, um, you know, again, going back to, because of his response, um, I, I had to start looking at, well, I'm, I'm 50% of this. So how did I get here? And one of the thing, things that I did, um, discover, which was interesting was a lot of women with eating disorders pair up with people with sex addiction. It's like 93% because there's the insecurity on my part and the needing to um, be validated in codependency. And then on his part, it's the maybe subconsciously the ability for power and control because they sense that insecurity in your spirit. So I, you know, it was kind of like the perfect storm when I look back on how we got together. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then moving forward, you've got these two kids and I thought, I don't want to be divorced. I still really love him. And yet how do I reconcile this? So again, it was the perfect time to say, I mean, God, again, (laughs) backed up against a wall again, Lord, I need you. I mean, if I'm going to love him like you do, I need your kind of love because humanly, I just want to pack up and go. That I had um, amazing small group. Um, I mean, we had so many people come alongside of us when I look back of the Lord just had everybody placed um, right when we needed him. And um, he did really well with uh, recovery for the next four years, but we had to, we sold our house. I mean, this sounds sort of silly, but lost our boat. We just lost all kinds of stuff and started a life over and was kind of, we bought this fixer upper and it was very symbolic of trying to rebuild our lives as a family. And unfortunately my kids were aware of, they were 11 and 13 at the time of that show. Mm -hmm. Um, and my best friend who she was like my kid's second mom and we, our families always did, um, holidays together. She was a huge component of helping kind of fill in the gap when my kids needed a place to stay, when we were doing this kind of, um, depth of, I guess, recovery. Uh, and so, um, four years go by and I still see, you know, darkness and, And yet it wasn't the same kind. It was more somebody, an addict without their drug. And for the very first time trying to grapple with their feelings. And, um, I, I think the, I think research shows that once when you're, um, sexually abused, you stop your emotional growth stops there. And so, um, one of the counselors had asked David, 
how old do you think you are emotionally? And he said, um, and at the time he said, probably the same age as my son. And that was 11. So there was a lot of catch up to go through. And, um, you know, he did an amazing job for a long time and led groups also locally to help guys through this. And, um, you know, at the end, and he always said, if I ever went back to that life, I'll kill myself. And so, you know, a lot of people use that phrase flippantly, but, um, it was for real. So in December of 2010, um, he took his life. So, um, that was, that's not the normal trajectory of that. I think it's like 3% of guys end up doing, going to that extreme. Um, you know, and I later found out through his computer and putting, um, emails and stuff together that he had, uh, relapsed that mm. weekend when my son and I were skiing and my daughter was across town house sitting. So, um, it left us with a giant, giant hole. But again, it was like the Lord said, I'm here. Like, don't be afraid. You know, when, when you walk through the rivers, you won't drown. And when you walk through the fire, you won't be burned. I just, again, held on to those kinds of things and just thought, okay, God, here we go. And at that point, my kids are 16 and 17. So I thought my ultimate nightmare was handed to me um, about being a single mom. And I thought, oh my gosh, these poor kids. I mean, here, my daughter's in her senior year of high school. And so it was a journey from there to walk through that. And at that same point, my best friend who had walked alongside of us two and a half years later, she took her life. Both at that point, my son, I mean, um, my husband and my best friend were strong believers. And so it leaves you scratching your head, but it also shows me the enemy is powerful, very powerful. And if you don't walk with the Lord and you continue down those paths of sin, um, it, it's, uh, it's hard to come back from sometimes. So he was kind of trying to, uh, get healing and get help. Um, but also put in a leadership position because 10 years ago, 12 years ago, mm-hmm. I don't think we understood the amount of trauma and healing that needs to take place. Exactly. So I can imagine everyone's like, oh, okay, well, he was addicted to porn and he had a, a sex addiction and he's a Christian, so he can teach the class. Mm-hmm. So now he's teaching all these men, but now there's this pressure Huge on pressure. top of just getting help mm-hmm. to perform again. And so all of a sudden he relapses and it's just too much. Yeah. And I think he just, he knew cause I had to put some boundaries down. Yeah. Um, if you go down that road again, I have to divorce you because yeah. honestly it sets a precedence for my kid. This is just not yeah. okay. Yeah. So, and he knew that, um, mm-hmm. and neither one of us wanted that, but I also think, um, yeah, the pressure of leadership, but also, uh, I just think the self forgiveness, he knew we forgave him for all of that, but it was more the reactivity after that of him trying to function without that as a drug. Um, there was a lot of walking on eggshells, um, and the moodiness and, and that was really hard to deal with. Um, so yeah, in the end, sadly, it got the best of him. And I just think he couldn't forgive himself. I think that's really what it came to. How in the world do you move forward? I just, so I'm just seriously, I'm, I'm, I, I'm yeah. wondering this. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like, okay, so you've went through an abortion. You've walked through bulimia. You found out your husband has a porn addiction. You found out your husband's it's more than a porn addiction and now you're dealing with being a single mom because your husband just committed suicide. It's a lot. It, it is a lot to go through. Yeah. And yet you're still here. Yep. And you're still loved by so many people. How in the world did Jesus help you through this? It's indescribable. Like those first three months following his suicide, we had meals at our door so much though. After three months, I had to say, well, we need, we need to stop this. Um, people just came out of the woodwork. It, it just was like the, um, and this is the power of texting, but when the night that that happened in our house, 
um, 130 people were at our house within an hour. And it was my kids texting their friends who connected, con, uh, texted youth group leaders and parents and friends. And anyways, just, you know, it was like the body of Christ. You just saw visually like what a picture. And I remember walking down the end of the driveway, our house at that point was kind of up on a hill and seeing all the lights and seeing all the people there. And it was such a picture of hope for me because the Lord knows how I'm wired. And a lot of people said, gosh, I wouldn't want anyone up at the house. I wouldn't want anyone to be near me. And I thought, no, but that's how God knows us intimately. He knew exactly what I needed. I needed like a whole crew. So, um, yeah. So walking from that, um, he, again, I'm just going to, it's like the more my life went down in a valley, the higher my faith went. Like it just, they were polar opposite lines because I just knew this is where my hope is. It's where my strength is from. Um, And I would look at my kids and think they're looking to me for strength and I need to look to the Lord because I don't have it humanly. I mean, I just, yeah, it was a little overwhelming. So, um, it was uh, those early days. I mean, five months, I did everything they said not to do the first year your spouse dies. Don't sell your house. I sold my house five months later. Um, just all the things. But it, again, God was just positioning um, me. And there were some unfortunate things. And God bless my kids. But my daughter initially was going to go to Azusa and ended up pulling back and going to WSU because of us being here in the situation. Um, my son wanted to go to U of Alabama, Tuscaloosa and roll with the tide. And, um, I just was like, how are we going to afford this? So I felt like a dream breaker, but, um, they rolled right into it. Both of them went to WSU. And I just look at, again, God, like the youth group leaders they've had that they still keep in contact with that when my son comes into town, he still goes out to lunch with, um, so there's a power of a youth pastor. Huge, huge, huge. Um, Yeah. So I, but I think, um, there's been some delayed healing and wanting to get away from that from their standpoint, which I totally get. Um, but God just kept, I remember like when I first got to the first year, so it would have been my son's senior year. I went to every call, every, um, football game, every, everything. And, um, realizing I got to go back to work and I've let my career go forever. I'm like, Lord, what do I do? And just as he would do, I was in the stairwell at the athletic club and, um, somebody from Northwestern mutual, the director asked me what I was going to do. Cause he knew David. And I said, I don't know. And he said, good, let's have breakfast tomorrow. So I ended up going to Northwestern mutual is the director of recruiting where I met your brother. Yeah. Um, And so I see like, okay, God took my recruiting and resurrected it for a while. But then after two years and I kept trying to quit because I, (laughs) I was over the corporate world. Um, And then one day, and again, this is God. uh, It was a Sunday, three separate people emailed me the job description of the caseworker at life services. And I'm thinking a maternity home. What (laughs) knowing me, I mean, um, if it was a frat home, yes, but a maternity (laughs) home, no. (laughs) So, um, anyway, so I went there and I just, again, I saw, uh, it made me smile when I looked at my resume and I thought he's taking all the yucky things and utilizing those to then, um, put mm-hmm. me in positions where I, not only what I would heal, but I'd be able to share the darkness that he's walked me through yeah. and share it with other people walking similar roads. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then, uh, so I was with life services for six years and, um, got the clear calling that it's, you know, time to take a, um, pause and it was time to leave. And I thought I was retiring. This is where God has such a sense of humor. And then I get a call, as you know, from a friend and she said, Hey, Caleb Altmeyer is trying to get a hold of you. I was like, Caleb, why? <laughs> and she, she goes, just go have coffee with him. So at the same time, she's calling me, you texted me or you called me, I think. And so when we met, I just had to smile because I thought, oh my gosh. And now, now we're getting the next chunk of my life of, um, being able to redeem. Like I used to have such a false idea of 
prostitution and call girls and anyone that was in that arena. Cause I would attribute the road I was walking down to that, like mm. blaming that, um, and realizing that's so not the truth. Most of those women don't want to be there. 98% of them, um, they're victims themselves. They want to matter. They, so it just, it's like the Lord shifted my heart and forgiveness in that arena. Huge. Mm. <clears throat> so what would you say is the biggest thing that you've, um, the biggest shift in mindset about, um, a woman that's being trafficked since uh, working here or even working at life services. Yeah. Cause by the way, they're an awesome organization. We love partnering with them and yeah, yeah, they're incredible. I, I loved it. And there was actually a couple of gals that had gone through the maternity home that were trafficked. Mm -hmm. And so that was really my first different re or, um, encounter in that way versus like they were the enemy that took out my husband, you know, that line of thinking. So, so false. Um, and so God started to show me no, the same thing. These gals are no different than you. And the irony is he did um, remind me of a time back in eighth grade when I was at a gas station and a guy came up to me and said, have you ever thought about modeling? And, and I look back on that now and I think that was probably a trafficker. And I, I just didn't know it. Um, so going back to it's shifted my whole thinking of redemption. We all need redemption and it doesn't really matter what you've done. I mean, God doesn't have a hierarchy of um, issues that he can and can't deal with. And just realizing the depth of, um, oh gosh, the trauma that they've been through and the hope, the hope's no different than really the hope that, Christ has shown me. Yeah. That's powerful. What, um, if you had one thing to say to somebody that was in your situation, maybe she's, um, just had an abortion. Um, what would you say to her? And then also the same for maybe somebody that's just <clears throat> their family just lost somebody. Mm. Um, you know, and then, maybe a wife that just found out her husband's been cheating on her. Like those are three really intense things to process. Mm -hmm. Let's start with the first one. What would you, what would you say to a young Nancy that was um, in that situation? Um, you know, I think the first thing is just listen, somebody to, I would listen to them <clears throat> and totally empathize with and, to encourage them not to feel guilty. It's supernatural, especially in our culture to think about, maybe I should have an abortion, but to pause that thought and really get to the why, what's the fear and really, and I don't want to be a placating Christian, but a Christ answers all those questions. He's the hope. He's the strength. He's the provision. He um, has put people that will walk alongside of you. And a lot of it is uh, being aware of the resources that are available. Because when I look back for me, nobody was there for that. Not a soul. It was Planned Parenthood, which, okay, that was not their MO. So, um, yeah, mm. I think a big part of it is just finding people that will um, come alongside you, whatever that alongside you is for. It's huge. What would you say to somebody that may just lost a dad or, um, you know, suicide's a hard thing. Mm. It's, uh, we've, we've, um, got people that are very close to me that have just walked through some of that. It's, you know, I think, uh, the person that's in pain just wants to escape. Mm -hmm. I don't think they fully understand the amount of pain that they're leaving behind. Yeah, I used to, people would always say that's so selfish. And does it land that way? Yes. But is that their intent? No. Because I, I look back on. So yeah, they're so, they're hurting so much. They just need to get out of it in their clearly. mind. Yeah. Um, there was a, a guy that um, he's on YouTube. My son put it up a few years ago that um, he's one of the very few that he was going to commit suicide. He did jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, but he lived. And he has a super powerful YouTube of the minute his foot left the bridge, he knew he didn't want to do that. Mm. 
and the fact that he lived and then now he's, it's his life's work about sharing. No, life is, you just, you don't know what you're putting into motion, but you're just so in pain and you can't find a way out. And I feel like, again, the enemy's greatest tool is isolation. And when I look back on David's situation that weekend, he was by himself. And so I think that is um, huge. And suicide is kind of that, the gift that keeps on giving in a sense, and it has no expiration date of um, how it impacts you. Like every, like every graduation my kids go through, it's just everything, you know, you have the good part, the celebration and different things, but then there's always an awareness somebody's missing. Mm. And I just think about that with anybody that's gone through suicide. It's painful. What would you say to a wife that just found out her husband's been cheating on her or, uh, Run, forest, run. No, I'm kidding. um, Um, Or he's involved in trafficking. I mean, that's um, heavy. Yeah, again, I think it's so important to find people that are um, resources like we are, like Life Services is, whatever, um, to to know that you're not alone. You're really not. um, And to validate your pain, but there are... Um, people who will walk through this with you, that will pray with you, that will be there for you however long that takes. Um, you just feel so overwhelmed in, in our culture or, or just the system in general. Like, And I know this sounds odd, but all the minutia you have to go through, like social security and writing the obituary, just all these, in a way, they're a gift because they help you focus on something other than how you feel at the moment, but they're also overwhelming. You just feel like your whole life just came to a crashing halt. And then all these things are expected of you. So the more people that you can have to support you and walk through you, grab onto them because they're a lifeline along with, again, I think knowing that, um, while God allows things, he doesn't cause that. So, um, I think it's easy to be angry at God. And I, I never, I never went down the path of why. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't go through the why, but it was more now what, what do I do with this Lord? I, again, I'm backed up against a corner, but as now I have a pattern and I look back, he is faithful and he continues to be faithful no matter how dark things get. Um, and there's a hope and in him knowing this is not all there is. Mm. Yeah. Amen. Okay. Let's land, land, land on that. Um, <laughs> I guess as we're wrapping up here, um, do you want to just share briefly the what you do at HRC and, yeah. um, how people might run into you and kind of now they understand more of maybe why you have a passion to work at HRC and why you're here. And yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, well, I'm the donor relations coordinator and I have the opportunity to talk with donors, call donors, um, partner with them in events. And I keep the, the gals in mind of when I think of, just whether it's a face, not a face as somebody I know, one of the gals, but just that image of somebody being trafficked and the power in the donors partnering with us to be able to change her life. Mm-hmm. And it's such a gift. And my favorite part, I just love hearing about people's stories. And one of my questions I always ask is, why HRC? There's so many other wonderful nonprofits. Like, what drew you here? And God always has a way to connect. Um, and it's, it's so interesting. Some of them seemingly random and others just like my story in some way, maybe a few steps removed, but impacted by this and just knowing, um, it makes a difference. Like if one gal goes through our program and her life is redeemed and she feels valued, it's worth it. I mean, it just is so needed. And I feel like it can make a massive difference and it is making a massive difference. 
So well, we love having you. Glad Thanks. that you unretired. <laughs> and uh see yeah, we'll talk me too. You into it. <laughs> yeah, he's really good at that. <laughs> All righty, guys. We love you. Thanks for watching. And uh this is Nancy. So if you see Nancy around, um you know, she has a story just like the rest of us, just like all of our staff. And I think the misconception is, is that, um, you guys are Christians. You work at a, you know, Christian perfect little organization. And, uh, there's a lot of behind the scenes, um, stuff that you've been through and ways that you can relate to people. And mm -hmm. so we want to be here for you. If you're in a situation like that, we want to pray with you. And, uh, we've got people on our team that, have gone through the fire and have come out the other side. And so there's hope and, mm -hmm. uh, that hope is in Jesus. It sure is. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you guys.